Good morning, Calvary Satterton, and good morning, Calvary Quakertown. It's good to be with you all on this crisp morning. Well, we're in a series that we're calling Speak Up, and I do have to let you in on a little secret, kind of behind-the-scenes secret, and that is we had, a, we had a hard time deciding on the title for this series. There was kind of a raging debate. There weren't fistfights, but there was a raging debate. And the debate was, should we call the series Speak Up, or should we call the series Legacy? And some of you are probably sitting there thinking, how in the world can the same series either be called Speak Up or Legacy? Well, pretty easily, actually. Because you speak up for things, and you speak up against things, and when you do that long enough, you establish and then leave a legacy. But what we learned last week is that our speaking up in favor and speaking up against doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's a mission underneath our speaking up. So it kind of works like this. You have a mission inside of you. You adopt a mission. You create a mission. You put together a mission. Or you adopt God's mission. So you've got a mission that you're passionate about pursuing. And as you begin to pursue it, following that mission causes you to stand up against some things and cause you to speak up in favor of some things. And the longer you speak up against and the longer you speak up for on the basis of that mission determines the legacy you will leave. So they really are tied together in a neat little package. Mission determines what you speak up for and what you speak up against. And what you speak up for and against long enough becomes the legacy for good or for bad, that you leave to those that will follow. Well, we're in the book of Esther, trying to figure this out. And we're looking at the three main characters because they have three very different missions. And since they have three different missions, they speak up for different things and they speak up against different things. And so just to kind of remind you where we were last week, we looked at the king, King Xerxes, and we said King Xerxes' mission was all about power. And he uh, paraded that power to get the praise of the people. And he accumulated lots of possessions to demonstrate that power. So Xerxes' mission was all about the three Ps. How to get power, accumulate possessions, and then the praise, respect, adoration of the people. And in chapter 1 of the book of Esther, he has three parties in which he parades his possessions and all of the trinkets of his rule to get the people to praise him and to demonstrate his power. And that chapter ended with Xerxes sending for the queen, his wife Vashti, and inviting her into the frat party that he was having. And he wanted to kind of parade her beauty before them as his trophy wife. And if you remember, Vashti said, Boy, thanks a lot, Xerxes, for inviting me, but no thanks, I'm not coming. And he is furious at that. He calls the Supreme Court members together, and he says, what am I supposed to do? None of the women in the kingdom will have anything to do with our husbands if this word gets out. And the Supreme Court issues a verdict that says, Vashti is never again to come into your presence. She's banished from your presence forever. Xerxes says, good. Vashti says, thank God. And then it kind of continues. Well, we're going to pick up with the beginning of chapter 2, and the Esther mission kind of goes for the next few chapters. I would encourage you all, by the way, 
read through the rest of the book this week, the last character, the last mission we're going to look at next week, um, you'd be ahead of the game if you knew where we were going. So follow along as I read the beginning part of Esther chapter 2, and we try to ascertain Esther's mission. So here we go. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, along with those taken captive when Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadessah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman was also known as Esther. She had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best palace in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. That's kind of the next episode in what's happening. Notice as the story unfolds, there's tension and there's resolution. You know, all good stories have tension. And stories that we like then have resolution. The tension comes quickly in that Xerxes thinks back that he's banished, he's banished Vashti, Vashti from his presence, but now he misses her, right? And so when the king Xerxes furious, decides, you know, what did I do? I kind of liked having Vashti around, and now I don't have her. But the edict can't be changed, so what's he going to do? Well, his personal attendants are then called. Notice, he doesn't call the Supreme Court this time. The Supreme Court would probably be comprised of, you know, old, wise, sage-type guys, and they're the ones that made the decision, banish Vasti from your presence. Now he, he needs to decide on a new plan. He doesn't call the Supreme Court. He calls his personal attendants. They're like the guards, right? They're, they're the bouncers of the group. How old do you think the guards are? Oh, they're going to be younger, right? Which means they're going to be filled with te testosterone, right? They're going to have a different perspective. And so when he goes to the young personal attendants and says, hey, I really miss the queen, what do you guys think I should do? They say, we know, have a beauty contest. What's the number one criterion as to who's going to be the next queen? How she looks. So there's tension. Xerxes misses the queen. He likes having a queen around. Vashti was fun every once in a while, except when she went, didn't do what he wanted. 
Now she's not there. What should I do? There's tension. Resolution, have a beauty contest. And the winner of the contest will be made queen. Aren't you glad that we live in really enlightened times compared to back then? I mean, think about it. How stupid would it be to get a whole group of young women together and have them vie for the affection through intrigue and deceit and competition so that in a public spectacle, one guy would be able to choose his mate from that group? I mean, how stupid of an idea would that be, right? Aren't you glad we live in an enlightened day like we do? We would never resort to something so crass and backward as that, right? Oh, does that sound familiar, that story? Yeah, some things never change, right? Now, notice uh, when I read that uh, Esther conceals her spiritual identity. Do you notice that? Mordecai actually told her to. Now, we're not told why, but it seems to be it must be something like Jews were not looked at real favorably in the kingdom. And so Mordecai, who's looking out for young Esther, says, oh, Esther, by the way, don't tell anybody about your spiritual identity. Don't tell anybody about the fact that you worship the God of the Bible. Don't tell anybody about the fact that you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't tell anybody about any of that. You just go there, look pretty, and try to win the pageant. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? We wouldn't expect that, but that shows up in the story. It's making the tension and resolution a little more interesting. And then there's preparation. Did you notice the preparation? Twelve months of beauty treatments. I'll tell you what, after 12 months, if it ain't happening, it ain't happening, right? I mean, you get 12 months of cream and 12 months of this and 12 months of that and 12 months of perfuming. And I'll tell you what, after a whole year, it's not working. Now, you know, just to be fair, uh, I'm gonna, we're going to do a little quiz this morning. Everybody has to participate, not only the women, because some of you men are prissy too, right? All right, so here's the quiz. Uh, think back to that really important first date, right? Or think back to that really important senior prom, that really important time when you need to make an impression on that member of the opposite sex, right? Now, now be honest, don't raise your hand until I, give you the, until I give you the question. How many of you spent more than 15 minutes getting ready for that first date? Raise your hand. Now, some of you didn't raise your hand. That's why you didn't have a second date, all right? I mean, you can't even invest 15 minutes and bath and shave and stuff like that, right? Yeah, most, most everybody raised their hand, right? So you, you invested at least 15 minutes getting ready for the big date, all right? Second question. Now, be honest. How many of you spent more than an hour ever getting ready for a date? Raise your hand. Yeah, I, a lot of prissy men here. I know, yeah. Uh, and that's a long time, right? All right, now we have another question. How many of you spent more time getting ready for the date than the date was in length? Anybody have that? If some of those dates don't work out, well, you think my prep time was longer than the actual date. How many of you had more fun preparing than you had on the date, right? Anybody? Yeah. Okay, now think about this. She was preparing, not, not just her, 127 women, right? One woman 
the most beautiful woman from every province. Remember back to the first chapter, Xerxes rules over 127 provinces. I mean, this makes like Miss America look like child's play, right? 127 contestants. That means there are 127 preliminary contests. And the most beautiful woman from every one of the 20, 127, they gather together and they get a year of beauty treatments. Then for 120, at least 127 days, one by one, they go into Xerxes' presence. I mean, that's a lot of preparation. Esther makes it through the preliminaries. She's chosen the winner of her province. She then goes into Xerxes, and she's victorious. She wins the beauty pageant. She becomes queen. And what does Xerxes do? Xerxes do? He has a banquet. He throws a party, right? And so now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. She had won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And they lived happily ever after. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> no, 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 no. Remember, this is a book of peripety. This is a book where it seems like it's gone in one direction, but then it goes again. Hollywood may have ended it there, right? Just like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, and they lived happily ever, even they don't either. Reading People magazine, what happens in that mess, right? Um, yeah, but here's Peripety again. They don't live happily ever after. This doesn't work out. In fact, immediately we take off again into another tension. And so we got tension resolution, but the resolution doesn't last long. Before you know it, we're into another tension. Now, we'll get more into the tension next week, but let me read your verse and tell you a little bit of the backstory so you can understand the second tension. The king and Haman sat down to drink. Another party, right? Haman the horrible. Who the heck is Haman? Well, Haman is the villain in the story. And Mordecai, remember Esther's cousin, Mordecai, refuses to show respect to Haman. Haman is Xerxes' right-hand man, which means he has the king's ear and he's pretty good at manipulation. So Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. Mordecai will have nothing really to do by showing respect to Haman, and Haman is ballistic. In fact, Haman is so angry that rather than just trying to have Mordecai killed, Haman finds out that Mordecai is a Jew and Haman manipulates the king to get the king to allow an edict to stand that Mordecai and all the Jews in the whole kingdom will be executed. I told you he was a nasty guy, right? So Haman manipulates the king because Mordecai won't show him respect. Boy, we'll talk about Haman's mission next week, right? He's so angry that Mordecai won't bow down and submit to him and show him, this, uh, show him respect. He's not only going to have Mordecai killed, he's going to have all of Mordecai's people killed. And he uses the king's signet ring to sign the deal, which means it now can't be changed. There was a rule back then called the Law of the Medes and the Persians, right? These are Persians. Law of the Medes and the Persians, which said... No law that's ever, that ever is the king's signature can ever be overturned. So you can't change the law. So now the king's in a tough spot, right? Haman manipulates for the edict to be sent, and now all the Jews are under a death sentence. They're all going to be executed. Well, if you think about it for a minute, 
Mordecai's a Jew. And Esther is a Jew. And pretty, pretty soon when they show up and kind of are looking at everybody's ancestry and checking out all their paperwork, it's going to be discovered that Mordecai's a Jew, Esther's a Jew, and they're going to be executed along with the rest of them. That's a little bit of tension in the story, don't you think? And so this verse in verse 15 of chapter 3, it says, the king and Haman sit down. Haman's toasting this deal, right? He's won the day. But it says all of the people in Susa are bewildered. They get the edict that comes from the king, but it makes no sense, for, sense to them. Why in the world would all of the Jews be under a death sentence? What did they do? Why, why is the king sending out this bill that all of the Jews are now going to be killed? What in the world's going on? Well, then there's a challenge. Talk about the next uh, tension and resolution. Yeah, here's the big tension. Mordecai says to Esther, Hey, Esther, you have the king's ear. You need to go before Xerxes and tell him to not allow the edict to stand. Wait, think about that for a minute. Esther, you need to go before the king and tell him that edict was wrong. Esther says, uh, well, you may not know what, how it works here in the palace there, uh, Mordecai, but let me tell you how it works. I'm not permitted to just walk into the king's presence on my own. In fact, you have to be summoned to enter the king's presence. And if he doesn't summon you and you just show up, if he doesn't raise the scepter to you, you lose your head, right? Talk, talk about somebody on a power trip, right? That's Xerxes, right? And so you don't understand. I just can't walk into the king's presence. And what am I going to say? Hey, by the way, Xerxes, you're a moron for signing that stupid edict that Haman sent to kill all the Jews. And by the way, I'm a Jew. Kings normally don't like that kind of stuff, right? And so Esther says, Mordecai, you don't understand. I can't do that. I'm taking my life in my hands. Mordecai will not be deterred. And here is how we read the next section. This is kind of the central part of the book. Here's what Mordecai says to Esther. Do you think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape? For if you remain silent at this time, speak up, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family, father's family, will perish. And look at this sentence. And who knows, but did you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther's thinking of all the excuses just like you and I would, right? It says, Mordecai, you don't understand. What if he, Mordecai, you don't understand. What if I, what if they? Oh, and by the way, not only can I just walk into his presence without being invited, he hasn't called for me in 30 days. Remember, he has a harem that has at least 127 women in it, right? So my guess is Esther's turn wasn't coming that often. I haven't been called for a month, and now I'm going to walk into his presence on the 31st day and announce that I'm here and he signed a stupid edict? Mordecai, you don't understand. I'm risking my life here. Is that what you're asking? And Mordecai says, yeah, that's what I'm asking. But who knows? Maybe you're in this position for such a time as this. Well, that's a tough guy, right? Well, Esther goes. The king is angry, and eventually Haman 
winds up getting the bad end of the stick. We'll look at that part next week. But I want to talk about Esther's mission and how it relates to ours. And we're going to do it the same way we did last week, by looking at and asking a few questions. So here's the first question. Do you understand what God's big mission is? Do you understand what it is? Um, Just in case you don't, let me kind of rewind uh, the clock a little bit. And part of the reason that that I'm doing this, I had um, somebody came up last week after the service, and the error on my part, right? (laughs) This young girl came up and she said, this is my first time at Calvary Church, and I was really interested but you mentioned, like, you need to get in step with God's mission. What is God's mission? Because I think that that's what I want. Well, so let me tell you what God's mission is. God created human beings, and he said to them, I want you to love me as I love you, and I want you to love one another. I want you to serve me, and I want you to serve one another. I want you to take this love-nurturing relationship that we have, and I want you to extend it to everybody else. I want you to be my stewards, you taking my principles, you taking the values of the kingdom, and I want you to kind of extend them into your context. That's the mission. Love me, love other people, and extend the values of the kingdom. We would say it this way. Your mission is to continue what Jesus started, right? To take the values of the kingdom, loving God, loving people in details, tactical ways, and implementing them in our context. That's the big mission. Now, that mission got thwarted when sin entered the world. So God creates our first ancestors. They're in a right relationship with him, a right relationship with each other. But then they traded in the mission. And they said, no, 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 we don't want that mission. We've got another mission. We're going to serve ourselves and love ourselves. And God's going to kind of be on the back burner. And we're going to do it our way, not his way. And then alienation resulted. And so once when there was connection and community, now there's alienation. And our mission after the fall is to bring reconciliation where there was alienation. Xerxes not doing anything about that big mission, is he? I mean, Xerxes all about himself. Xerxes living out the Adam and Eve mission over again. And Mordecai says to Esther, you need to start living out the original mission of God. Okay, so... What's your role, and what's my individual role in that? Now, you do realize God has this big mission. Love God, love people, serve God, serve people, extend the values of the kingdom. Have you ever noticed that there are different positions on a team? So on a football team, for example, there's some skinny, really, really fast guys. Then there's some other guys that have giant bellies and butts. And they don't run fast. They keep people from running into their quarterback and killing him. All right? Then there are other people that are kind of ripped, right? And their job is to tackle the little fast guys if they can catch them. They're usually called linebackers, right? So on a football team in an NFL game, so this afternoon, uh, the Chargers and the Eagles will each suit 46 players. Those 46 players don't have the same job. They have the overall missions the same to win the game, right? But they have different little missions within the big mission. And then also on that 46-man team, there are kickers. Now, kickers aren't really football players, all right? (laughs) Kickers are soccer players masquerading as football players, right? They put a helmet on, put some pads on, all of a sudden they think they're a football player, right? Oh, yeah, but it's kind of interesting. Last Sunday, that little imitation football player named Jake Elliott, 
kicked a 61-yard field goal, and the non-football player was carried off the field by the real football players. He had a little mission inside the big mission. Think about it. How much playing time did Jake Elliott have in the game? Not much. How many tackles did he make? Oh, my goodness, he'd get broken, right? Um, how many yards did he have? How many touchdowns did he score? None. But he got carried off the field, and he won the game. You see, in the big vision, there are little tiny missions. In the big plan, there are little roles, and you and I have a little role under the umbrella of the big role, the big mission. So we need to understand something of the big mission, and then we need to understand something about our role, the part we play in accomplishing the big mission by playing our little part and fulfilling our role well. Now let's talk about Esther for a couple minutes. Remember, Mordecai says to Esther, who knows? Maybe you have been given your place in the palace for such a time as this. That's interesting, right? So what are some of the things that Esther's been given? She's beautiful. That didn't happen because of the 12 months of treatments, all right? I mean, no 12 months of treatment can't make you beautiful. It may clean up some of the rough edges, but it's not. And look, I'm not making that up. I'm not looking down on that. God made Esther really beautiful. If she wasn't really beautiful, she probably wouldn't have been queen. She's the queen of Persia. That's a pretty big resource, right? She has access to the king. Now, it may cost her her life if he's not looking for her that evening, but nobody else in the kingdom couldn't make his or her way down the hallway, knock on the king's door and go in. She had access to the king. Not just that. She had lots of resources. I mean, she had the resources of the kingdom at her disposal. Don't you think if she wanted something, she couldn't have called the servants? I'd, I'd really like this. I'd like this to eat. I would like some new clothing. Lots of resources. She had staff and servants waiting to do what, what she wanted. She had really cool clothes, lots of cool perfumes. Esther had a lot of really good resources. And what's Mordecai say? Who knows? Maybe you're in the position you're in and have the resources you're in for such a time as this. So let me ask you. What resources do you have? If you know your resources, if you know your gifts, you know your situation, you know your skills, that'll help you determine the role God wants you to play under the big umbrella mission. So what education do you have? What experiences do you have? What skills do you have? What spiritual gifts do you have? What kind of money do you have? What kind of house do you have? What vehicles do you have? What network do you have? What job do you have? What family do you have? What connections do you have? You see, all of that stuff hasn't happened coincidentally, has it? And God doesn't want you or me to just take all of that stuff, assume it, take it for granted, oh, it's all just a coincidence, and go out and use it however we want. Esther had all of these things that could have been looked at as a series of coincidences, but Mordecai says, time out, Esther. Don't think that you have all this stuff just by way of coincidence. Maybe you have the position. Maybe you have the resources. Maybe you have the network. Maybe you have the consequences. Maybe you have all of those coincidences for such a time as this, Esther, you're the only one in the kingdom that can knock on the king's door and tell him to rescind the edict. Now, I do have to raise a, 
an objection at this point? Because I have the sneaking suspicion that if you're anything like me, you've raised this objection before, right? Here's the objection. But it's not my fault. You've, you've never said that, right? Couldn't Esther have said, but it's not my fault. Horrible Haman had the edict signed. It's not my fault. The Jews are in exile in Babylon. It's not my fault that I'm beautiful. and It's not my fault that any of this has happened. Let me paraphrase Mordecai. It's not your fault, but it is your time. Maybe that's God's message for us today. It's not our fault, but it is our time. So let me just rehearse some of what you hear me talk about and what the church talks about. It's not my fault that hurricanes hit Texas, Florida, and Puerto Rico. It's not my fault. But it is our time to do something about it and bring relief in whatever way we can to the victims of those hurricanes. It's not my fault that the schools in Philadelphia are in the toilet. That's not my fault. But it is our time to do what we can to provide tutoring help and to put in a playground and bring facilities for kids after school and during school. It's not my fault that some of those old buildings in Philadelphia and those places where kids gather after school, it's not my fault that they don't have Wi-Fi or those kids don't have iPads or cell phones. It's not our fault, but it is our time to do something about it. It's not my fault that hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of abortions are committed every year. It's not our fault, but it's our time to support crisis pregnancy centers and maybe do something about it. It's not my fault, it's not our fault that racism is running rampant in the land, that the vision between African Americans and whites and Asians, are, that those rifts are getting bigger and bigger. Maybe that's not our fault, but it is our time to love one another and care for one another and do what's right in the midst of all of those things that are not our fault. So I think Mordecai's words to Esther maybe are apt words to us. It's not our fault, but it is our time. Isn't that what Esther's saying? Mordecai, you don't understand. It's not my fault that we're in Babylon. It's not my fault that Haman had the thing signed. It's not my fault that the Jews are going to be slaughtered. It's not my fault that Xerxes is a jerk. It's not. And Mordecai says, time out. Time. I didn't say it was your fault. All I said was, it is your time. It's time to speak up and to act up and do what needs to be done to bring the values of the gospel, the values of the kingdom into our context, to speak up for what needs to be expanded and speak against what needs to be put down. It, it is our time. That's all we're saying. It's not our fault, but it's our time. That's the first question. Here's the, the next question, and in some ways uh, it's more important. How does Esther... Help us read the Bible. You may be thinking, what? In fact, up until that one verse in there about Esther being Jewish, my guess is some of you are thinking, how in the world did this book ever make the cut to be in the Bible? I mean, we got a king having party after party, drunken orgies at the thing. He invites his trophy wife in. She won't go. He banishes her from her. Then he has a beauty contest. All the virgins from the kingdom come in, the most beautiful one. He picks the next one to be queen. They all the others stand. Who in the world put this in the Bible? 
Yeah, but in this book, maybe we learn how to read the Bible. Maybe we learn how to read the Bible better in Esther than we learn how to read the Bible some other places. So uh, here's how I'm going to pitch it to you. Esther is not an example to follow. I know it seems like she's the heroine of the story, right? Oh, look at Esther. She's very brave. Yeah, she does all that stuff, right? And can I tell you this? She breaks more than half of the commandments in the first few chapters of the book. Esther is no Daniel. Daniel's in exile too, right? And remember, Daniel says, I'm not eating that food. That food's been off the food on, baby. Esther says, well, I'm not going to tell anybody what my spiritual identity is. Daniel says, I follow the living God, the only God. Esther is no Daniel, all right? In fact, all that Daniel stands up for, Esther stands up for none of it. None of it. Let me tell you some of what she does do. She conceals her spiritual identity. She plays to win in that beauty pageant. She befriends like the head beautician, right? Don't you think there's a little bit of intrigue and shrewdness kind of going on there? She knows how to play the bachelor game. She plays to win, and she wins. That shrewdness works out through the rest of the book, right? She plays to win. Is she really saying, well, really, I want you other girls to be first. You first, not me. She's saying, heck no, me first. And she wins. Not just that. Esther loses her virginity to a pagan king before they're married. She has premarital sex with Xerxes. That's what happened that night. They didn't just sit and talk over coffee, all right? Esther is brutal. After the tables get turned, five hundred Persians are killed because you can't rescind that edict so a new edict is given and the new edict is the Jews can take up weapons and weapons are sent and when they come to kill the Jews the Jews can fight back and kill them the Jews kill 500 of them that are coming to kill them Xerxes then 500 dead people Xerxes then says to Esther Esther 500 of my people are dead. She says, not enough. 300 more die after that. She's brutal. So what are you going to say? Go do like Esther. Go ahead, go be like Esther. Shrewd, live a me first life. You know, premarital sex, murder, intrigue, deceit. Go, go do that. That's not how we read the Bible. Esther is not an example to follow. We don't come to the Bible to find examples. We come to the Bible to find signposts moving us to Jesus. That's what we find. Esther is a signpost to Jesus. Now, how does that work? How in the world does Jesus get fit up in that story? Here's how it works. Esther, first of all, identifies with her people. When she goes and lets Xerxes in, on what's going on, she says, and Xerxes, I am a Jew. If that edict gets enforced, I get killed too. She's identifying with those that are condemned. She's identifying with those that have that death sentence over their head. She identifies with them. And secondly, she intercedes for them. She brings mediation for them. She says, And isn't there something that can be done? She risks her life 
to save and protect them. Does that story sound familiar? Someone identifying with us, those, all of us that have a death sentence over our head? Jesus leaves the palace to end all palaces, comes to earth and identifies perfectly with us. And then he stands before his Father and he makes mediation and intercession for us, not risking his life, but giving his life. It cost him his life. So Jesus says, I am one of them. And I'm willing to pay the price that they deserve to pay. So what do we learn about Esther? Not an example to follow, a signpost to the gospel. And what are the big themes of the gospel? Jesus identifying with us, becoming one of us, identifying with us, and then Jesus paying the price, his own life, to bring mediation so that we can be reconciled to God and the edict of death can be removed from over us. That's how you read the Bible. That's how you read Esther. So here's my question to end. So what's your mission? Are you on the Xerxes mission? Any piece of the power, possessions, you know, praise kind of mission? Is that, is that what you're about? Are you on the Jesus mission of identifying with people that are in difficult positions and you may not be in them? Are you willing to identify with those people that are under those circumstances and in them? And are you willing, even though it's not your fault, to intercede and do what you can about that situation? When you do those things, you don't become like Esther, you become like Jesus. And our mission is to continue what he started. Esther points us to him. Let's stand and pray. Father, we give you thanks for this signpost stuck in the middle of the Old Testament. And here we see a woman who risked her life by identifying with her people and interceding for her people. But if we keep turning the pages, we come to the climax of the story and we find Jesus, our Savior, perfectly identifying with us, making intercession and payment for us. And none of it was his fault but it was his time. And now, Lord, we leave, and it's our time. Help us to speak up for what needs to be spoken up for, and help us to speak against what needs to be spoken against. Even though it's not our fault, it is our time. Help us to live it well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.